the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to our show. It's a little something we call the History of Personal Computing Podcast in color. Uh, I mean, for your stereophonic enjoyment of computer history nostalgia. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-host and your host of hosts, Jeff. How are you doing on this fine Friday evening, sir? Stereophonic. I'm a quadraphonic <laughs> person. Wait, Friday uh, evening. Oh, yeah. crap. I'm late. We better get recording soon. This podcast <laughs> could be played in quadraphonic quality, couldn't it? Yeah. Put an extra set of headphones between your nose and the back of your head, and um, you have four speakers around in your head. Yes. Yeah, so I mentioned it's actually, we're live Friday evening, Friday, yes. March 27th. So and normally, if you could hack into our stream, you can hear us live. Yeah, it's too bad we can just just uh, just upload live, right? Since so, of course, normally we record you know at least one day ahead of time, but we're doing it a little late. But the show will go out today, or my name isn't David, so All I got right. we have my uh, name countdown. isn't David, so <laughs> <laughs> we're counting down two hours and uh, forty nine minutes, Jeff. We got to record this. I got to edit it and get it. We'll get it online. All right, we'll do it. So one um, take. Oh, so something I wanted to uh, you know talk about that sort of ties in is I I purchased something I'm really excited about this past Saturday, and uh, you know that I own a reproduction Altair. Yes, and uh, we talked about that before, I guess. And of course, there's a number of sort of work alike computers nowadays or reproductions, uh, different computers and things. So, it, would it be fair to say that my my new Beetle convertible is a sort of a sort of a reproduction? I guess it's a re-imaging. It is a reproduction, Maybe a... but it's not like half scale. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I bought a new car, and I'm really excited about it. And I They're think, always fun to get new cars. Yeah, I had a Beetle a long time ago, and so I have a, a new one, and it's a convertible. Um, but I thought, honestly, it would kind of be interesting to sort of talk about it a moment because, um, you know, take and, and you have an old Beetle, an original Beetle. I do. Jeff. I have an old red 1974 Super Beetle, which I believe was tan before it was painted red, hmm. um, after scra scraping away some layers of paint on it before, and I'm going to paint it black, uh, but it's got a red, it's got that crushed red, uh, like Velux or Velour interior, really? which I believe is original, because huh. I have one of the brochures from 1974, and it yeah. had cloth seats as an option. I guess I could believe that. Yeah, I had, I had a 75 Super Beetle. It just had the standard like vinyl seats. If it wasn't original, somebody did a really good job at reupholstering it. It looks original compared to the pictures that are in the brochure. Well, so here's the thing is, so technically my Beetle, it isn't, a re, you know, in car cars, right? It's really not a reproduction. It's just a 2015 Beetle. But now the thing is, is of course, it is a Beetle. It really is. It's made by Volkswagen and they call it the Beetle and it looks like a Beetle. But now it's not truly... A beetle like it was from whenever you know ferdinand porsche designed it in the late 30s no, you until have a the, front engine don't you yeah and, it, and so it does not have a rear air-cooled engine it's a modern car and um i was actually talking to someone at work about this i don't think it would have been possible to create a modern car 
you know, with what people want in a modern automobile with a rear engine, little teeny air cooled <laughs> engine. Oh, not with emission requirements. Yeah, I don't think you could put a modern engine in the back of it, and it wouldn't look. It wouldn't look, be able to look the same either. No, I've seen people put uh, V8s and older Beetles before, but they really? had to move. Yeah, they had to actually move the front seats back to the back seat area wow. and extend the inside a little bit, and they shoved a V8 under the hood area. Wow. I, they had a local car show here uh, last year, and uh, I saw that, and I had to do a double take because it looked like the seating was a little wrong on the inside, but no, they, they modified the vehicle, and they put a V8 in the front. Just, but I think it's kind of I'm kind of proud, and I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. I, I own and, a and the new models have those car. old uh, vintage looking uh, baby moon hubcaps, right? Oh yeah. See, that's what makes. I didn't like the the first new Beetle that came out. It was no. okay, but they tried to make it modern. Yeah. And I like what they did with the the new new Beetle. Yeah. I don't even know what they call. I it think anymore. it was either 2012 or 2013. The current one came out, and it's just it's a little uh, bigger. It's a little. Um, I it's, think it's I'll put it this water. way. I think it's a little more masculine too. I don't no, know why they, they. I don't know why they went with the. Did it come with a flower for the day? No. Like, okay. So I don't know what they were doing with that. They were trying to necessarily target women on the first one, but um, you know, there's a number of reproduction, or if you will, so that's the thing. Like the Mustang's always been made, but of course they went retro with it yes. a few years ago, and the very the newest. I think it's 2015. It got redesigned. I really like what they did with it. With the new Mustang. The newest Mustang, yeah. Yeah, the Camaro. I, I saw that when I was buying my new Taurus, and uh, I like what they did with the rear windows, the louvered side windows. Yeah, yeah. They they actually layered glass to give it a louvered look. A fastback. Glass window. So they're, they're, they went for like the 1970 uh, Mustang, and then the Camaro, I think, you know, uh, they did a good job as far as it looks. It looks a lot like a modern 69 Camaro, and then you've got, what, the Charger and the Challenger, Dodge I Charger think? Charger, and the, yep. And uh, they did a good job with those. See so, what Dodge uh, need to do is put that big rear wing on the on the back of it and made well. Let's see who did that. It was that was the Roadrunner that had that, but they don't make the Roadrunner. Let's see. There's there's Dodge. There's Chrysler. Plymouth. One of those isn't around anymore, is it? Plymouth. Is Plymouth around. isn't around. Yep. There's a Plymouth Roadrunner. So old that one had that big old wing uh, on the back of it. Oh yeah, Superbird. Looked like, look like a handle that you could grab the car and drag it away. Um, and uh, so we're not an automobile show, so I'll get off it. But I'll, I'll mention one other thing is, uh, so I also owned, and it wasn't super nice. It was an old used one that was sort of beat up, but I liked it. It was a 280Z, a 77 280Z I had in the Oh, there's a collector's market on that. Yeah. yeah, but I've heard rumor, I haven't really researched this, so it could be complete nonsense, that, that maybe uh, Nissan's working on a retro Z car, which, you know, I don't really like. I think the Z cars, it looks, it looks nice and I'm sure it's an awesome car. It's just sort of boring to me. And I think if they did a retro version that had the lines and stuff, that would be exciting. Yeah. To look at the vintage style. I mean, I know they brought, they had the 300 Z and that, yeah, that was a nice looking vehicle in its modern form, mm-hmm. but yeah, they sort of kept, they sort of kept the nose and all that stuff on it. But anyway, all right, <laughs> so, enough on the cars. Yes. So we like we like retro things though. So that's kind of cool to have my cars retro. It fits my personality. So here we go. The history of personal computing is your bi-weekly stroll through our virtual personal computing museum. And we're looking back at the evolution of what we use as computing devices. The nature of personal computing has changed since it started, and our devices are now more for communication. Our stroll in the museum is through audio, and we post all of our writing and notes on our website. We've been discussing machines in a date order within tiers, as in the tiers of personal computing. 
In the past, the tiers developed as the desktop, laptop, and smartphone. Now they're best described as the laptop, tablet, and smartphone. So we're going to cover a little bit of a listener appreciation. And yes, some... we, need to, we need to get back in gear with all this. Some feedback we have a we bit, got... don't we? Yeah. I always forget to check the comments. So thanks, Jeff, for, for pulling these in. So Jeff did all the work on grabbing these because I always seem to forget to do that. Um, anyway, so Rob from the Player Missile podcast, which is an Atari 8-bit show, checked in to tell us he was covering a couple of the magazines we had covered, Creative Computing and Compute, on a monthly basis from an Atari perspective. There certainly is more than enough info to cover in those magazines, more than we can fit into our show format. We here at History of Personal Computing look forward to what Rob and others find as we review those past issues. You can find details about the Player Missile podcast at playermissile.com. And it seems we have become an impromptu primer on modern programming languages. Uh, weight of the inverse uh, Atasky. <laughs> I have you. <laughs> yeah. Weight of the inverse Atasky podcast learned a bit from what I talked about in the last show about the .NET environment I work with on a daily basis and how it's yet one more layer of abstraction from the actual computer hardware than it was in the early days of programming. And that's the way it is, you know. Back then, you programmed BASIC, and then you had a BASIC interpreter, and then you had the hardware that it worked against. Today, it's you got the, the, the hardware, you got the operating system, you got API calls, and then now you got this .NET stuff, and then you got to write pseudocode on top of the .NET. You know, anything could go wrong. Uh, anyway, he also mentioned that he was a regular subscriber of the Dr. Dobbs Journal back in the late 80s and early 90s. And I believe that famous eBay hindsight that bugs us all from time to time. Uh, he probably wished he didn't throw those away. Uh, yeah. They might have had some residual value. And well, there seems to be a run of people with Atari podcasts. Uh, the Inverse Atasky podcast um, can be found at inverseataski.info, and we'll have those links in the show notes. Yeah, I was going to comment too. So, of course, I am no programmer. But um, like you're talking about the layers of abstraction, I guess, you know, Hardware is such that it is, is so, I mean, relatively, it's just so darn fast now that that's pretty much why you can get away with that, right? Yes. and if, if, It doesn't if, matter anymore, all these layers and stuff like it used to matter. But could you imagine what kind of speed we can get out of these systems if we wrote down to the hardware level uh, when but, you have four gigahertz of processing power? I mean, would it also be almost too, like, impossible because there's they're so complex too now? Yeah, the well, yeah, the x86 chipset, if I remember this from my uh, classes, um, has, oh, what is it? I think it rings, there's like rings, there, there's levels of, um, I guess it's called authority for the lack of a better term. I just can't remember the terms right now. Um, but they have different levels that code can operate in, and they have different levels of priority, and it, you know, it can mask lower level code from higher level code and the processor can manage all that. There's, there's a lot of features built into the processor itself and that's what the operating system does for you automatically. So having a, a big operating system on your computer is the best way of managing all that computer hardware. Let, you know, let somebody else have figured it out and charge you $99, you know, for an upgrade um, than it is to try to code down to the hardware level. But yeah, they're very, very, um, versatile microprocessors if you look at the microprocessor for what it is yeah Multiple cores you know good command set uh, opcode set and um, many many features for memory management but we 
we don't even have the time to manage it ourselves. You know, even if you did have the time, if you could program that at an assembly language layer, then you have more time than you ever need on your hands. So we also heard from Kevin Lund, and um, he writes that he enjoyed the magazine special episodes. Thanks, Kevin. He mentioned also that one of his favorite magazines of the day was called Soft Side, which started off exclusively as a TRS-80 magazine, which then added Apple and Pet and then dropped Pet and put Atari in its place. Poor Pet. So Get rid Ke- of a Pet. <laughs> Kevin, during our research, we found uh, tons of interesting magazines and we didn't, you know, we tried to stick with just like, well, I guess, you know, there's always a bias, a bias of familiarity too, where we, we kind of the ones that we knew something of. So we would have loved to have covered them all, but because of our own personal interests and, and bias and interesting articles that we found in them all, uh, we just couldn't do all of them. But we'd certainly love to hear more about SoftSide and look into it. And that's why the internet is so great too. It is. And send us, a, yeah. send us a sh- pictures. So let me just go and say that. Send us pictures of any magazines that we missed or you'd like to see covered. And we certainly like to feature them on the site. It's fun reading. I mean, these days you can get these magazines and download them to your tablet, your phone, and read them offline and you know relive the past. That, and that's the nice thing about it. You know it. what? For that matter, if you find links to archives of SoftSide or any, any other magazines, send us those. Yeah, we love to read them. Yeah, and we'll, we'll list them. And finally, one last piece of information. It's not anybody in particular. It's sort of a broad uh, request. Uh, We have heard from a number of listeners who prefer direct downloads to our podcasts instead of the RSS feeds. They want to download the MP3s directly. A little history. When we do a podcast, we typically have a separate podcast entry on our website that helps us manage the audio and show notes. But we also create an associating article that goes into more detail about the computer's recover. Um, we did not do the latter for the magazine specials. That's usually where I would put the links to the direct downloads is in the associating article. Uh, however, after looking into a little bit, trying to see where we can get direct links, um, if you don't want to download or use the RSS feed for, um, putting into a podcast or anything, you can click on the RSS feed that's on the right hand menu of our website and it should open up in any browser and show you a condensed list of our podcasts um, along with direct links to each file. You can see they're, they're labeled with the .mp3. So you should be able to get it that way. And so give that a try. And it, what's weird is I'm telling people about this who normally won't be able to download this episode until they have the link. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of a chicken there, the egg type thing, isn't it? Um, but that does work. I was able to directly download the podcast as MP3 files using that RSS link we have on our website. So they'll always end up there when we publish them as a podcast. It just, the RSS link works for podcatchers to automatically sort and order and manage the actual podcast episodes in its own way, but you can still directly download the MP3 through that link. And just want to say from the both of us, thanks again, everybody for your continued support and subscribing to our podcast. Do you think that we should also I'm trying to think of like going to other podcast websites. Should we, should we have just an MP3 there? We can just download it. I know. So I guess some people list it that way, but I guess what you just it, explained it does. I don't works. think it'll hurt because anybody can get it from the RSS feed, no matter yeah. where they get an RSS feed. It's going to have to have that link. I guess just let us know if anyone, if you still have any problems with this, let us know. We want you to listen. So we'll now for this episode, we'll most likely have 
an associating page with a direct link. Okay. So Jeff, on today's show, we're going to cover two computers and uh, and systems, two computers, systems, I guess, from two different coasts. One is American, and though important, we wouldn't really say it was groundbreaking, while the other, um, other two really, was British and was in fact very groundbreaking in the English market. So today we're boldly, fully entering the 1980s with discussions of the TI-99-4A and the Atom, or the Acorn Atom computer, which ultimately led to the BBC Micro, depending on how you want to look at it. So <laughs> take it away. <laughs> All right, I will start with the TI-99 slash 4A. Okay, um, Texas Instruments is the maker of the TI-99 slash 4A and has always been a leader in the microprocessor technology. Uh, after a few years as a top manufacturer of electronic calculators in the 1970s using their own custom microprocessor technology and a foray into many computer systems using their 16-bit TI-990 processors, Texas Instruments decided to throw its hat into the ring of the home computer market in 1979. Oh, wait, I thought we were going to the 1980s. Um, they created the My story TI- starts in 79, yeah. too, though. There's a trend here. <laughs> we need a little overlap. Uh, yeah. Have a loose edge. Um they got into the market in 1979 with a TI-99 computer system. Now, the first TI-99, yes, there was more than one, was called the TI-99-4. It had a chiclet-style keyboard that looked more like a Texas Instruments calculator button than actual typewriter-style keyboard. Outside of its odd keyboard, its features were ca- comparable to other home computer systems of the day, except that it used a 16-bit TMS 9900 processor that they created themselves and it cost $1,150. However, that price included a modified 13-inch Zenith television, which works solely as a color monitor. See, they kind of went the route that Radio Shack did with the Model 1, where they had a modified black and white television, an RCA television. Yeah. So you you got the computer and you got the monitor for $1,150. Well, the TI-99 slash 4 did not fit into the market very well and had poor sales. I don't know why. It's actually a pretty nice computer. Well, but, and I'll jump in. Ahead. Well, now, I guess, of course, it, it did have a cartridge slot too, right? It did actually. So I was going to say, even though it didn't come with a cassette deck like the like the Radio Shack, I guess, in fairness, it, it had a means of putting, you know, running software. Yeah, you could hook up. Uh, so it was a full system. Stuff. Yeah, it, it was. It just, I think it kind of people had to wonder that's a lot of money to put into a computer yeah. initially um 1979 anyway, <laughs> yeah it well you know and apples were expensive too but they yeah they had they had a certain apple had something going for them ti-99 was trying to wedge into this market yeah now, now the entry price of 1150 dollars was considered rather steep especially since people found they could just hook up any composite monitor uh, available elsewhere but they had to buy this computer with the monitor. They couldn't separate it. <laughs> Bad. So <laughs> they're trying to profit on Zenith. Exactly. So with that in mind, uh, some revisions were made to its design and configuration, a pull here, a tweak there. And the result was the TI-99 slash 4A computer released in 1981. Here and after return, referred to as the TI-99. I'm not going to do the slash A's or whatever okay. unless I absolutely have to. Now, the new TI-99 sported 16K of RAM, the TMS-9900 CPU running at 3 megahertz, a custom TMS-9918A video display chip. That's where the A comes from in the TI-99-4A, by the way. Huh. Um, and 
the, those those features were also in the TI-99-4, but the difference is a 48-key keyboard with full typewriter-style keys was put on the 4A. It sold without the monitor for literally half the price of the TI-99-4, wow. or $525, but it included an RF modulator that allowed you to connect it to any TV. The newly revamped keyboard shared the slightly diminished dimension of the TI-99-4 keyboard. It wasn't a bad keyboard. It was actually really nice, but it was a bit cramped. Hmm. You know, 48 keys. That's kind of not a lot. <laughs> um, now, to the right of the keyboard was the cartridge slot. It was a front-loading cartridge slot, which was used to insert one of many patented solid-state cartridges that was their trademark name for gaming, programming, and utility needs for use of the computer. This had not changed from the earlier Slash 4 version. Texas Instruments actually banked on the idea that people wanted to, the use of their computer to be as simple as possible, so they marketed just about all of their software line as a plug-in solid-state software cartridge. The problem with that philosophy was that the cost involved in making the cartridges made the software more expensive than comparable software sold on disk for other brands of home computers. That seems odd, doesn't it? Because you, I mean, you tend to think of cartridges as being kind of cheap. And I, I can kind of see the benefit of, of a cartridge, though I got to think that maybe the perception of consumers was, you know, games came on cartridges. Games, yes. Because that's a good point. Games came on cartridges. You don't necessarily consider, okay, I have I have my home budget yeah. cartridge or something in there. You still need a storage device. Cassette recorders were available. Uh, any cassette recorder would work, but they marketed their own too uh, for storing your data. But the other thing might be is that it's a cost issue. I'm spending money on a computer. I don't want to spend a lot of money on my software for yeah, it. Right. And this computer over here, I could get a disc for $20, but I get the same features in a cartridge on the TI-99 for $35. Hmm. It adds up. Now, the cartridges are very, very good. They're very versatile. They last a long time. I have a bunch of them myself. Yeah. <laughs> and they just work. Yeah. I used, I used one as a stand for a table once, you know, to kind of a wobbly table. And, right. And I actually tested it out <laughs> over a year later, and it still works. I mean, every, every like Atari 2600 cartridge, not every, but most I've ever encountered still work. Yeah, outside of oxidation, which I don't think there was a big problem with oxidation on these cartridges. They were really well built. If anything, TI built these things solidly. But yeah, it it's they they tried the idea. They did that with their calculators. Their TI fifty eight and fifty nine calculators had solid state cartridges for expansion programs because they were programmable programmable calculators. But that's where that term solid state software came from. And because they were a chip manufacturer, they manufactured their CPU, they manufactured their video chip, and most likely their RAM, too. They could build this stuff probably, you know, using the old Commodore model. They had their own, you know, manufacturing plant. They probably built them, uh, the cartridges, cheap enough. But between that and what they wanted to sell it for, it, it, the consumer only sees what the selling price is. So it, it became expensive for the consumer. Hmm. Yeah. Now, um, continuing on, uh, you, you didn't have to settle for just this computer itself. Um, it, it can be expanded. <laughs> and this may have 
kind of led to other problems that uh, Texas Instruments had. But uh, the TI-99 slash 4, the first one, had numerous and relatively capable expansion options, which would also work on the 4A, but they were rather costly. Expansion was achieved through a side port on the computer. Uh, you could buy a number of external devices called sidecars, like a speech synthesizer at $150, an RS-232 with modem at $225, a thermal printer at $400, 32K memory expansion at $400, and disk drives with the disk controller itself at $300, and the disk drives at an additional $500 each. Wow. <laughs> Expensive yeah. stuff. And and by the way, that speech synthesizer is the same technology that Texas Instruments put in their uh, speak and spell. <laughs> and it sounded just like it, too. Yeah. They also, Texas Instruments today is a digital signal processing chip manufacturer. So they know how this stuff works. So they leveraged speech into their computers by leveraging their existing products. And it worked great. Um, those and, the, little, and the speak ahead. and spell, I think, was, uh, wasn't that what E.T.? Yeah, uh, they had that Customized in the movie. <laughs> Yep. Okay. <laughs> anyway, all of these uh, sidecars, you can, you can have all the, um, you you could add all these sidecars up with up like five others. You can have one and a total of six can be connected into the right-hand expansion slot. You mix and match which six you want. Um, although the speech synthesizer had to go in first. Everything else then connected out to the to the right of it now you can picture this now if you owned all sidecar devices that you can add you would have your ti-99 on the desk with a long extension of devices sticking out from its right side yeah <laughs> try to try to shift that around just to get a better angle on the keyboard um now after the 4a version was released a huge and heavy box called the peripheral expansion box or peb as it's known uh was released this provided a more sensible, modular expansion form factor. It connected to the TI-99, either one, the 4 or the 4A, by a large insulated ribbon cable, which is kind of known now as the fire hose. It was <laughs> wide. It was about three or four inches wide, and it was rubber-covered, really thick, heavy uh, cabling, and it plugged right into the side of the uh, TI-99. The expansion box resembled... Uh, a uh, S100 type of expansion in that it contained a power supply and slots, a, a number of slots, and expansion cards were placed into expansion slots as desired. The expansion cards were purchased separately and were specifically designed for the PEB. The PEB could also hold one or two disk drives to be used in conjunction with the drive controller card. A typical desktop com configuration for the PEB kit was to have the TI-99 sit in front of the PEB and the TV or monitor on top of the PEB. And I demonstrated this exact configuration, actually two of them, uh, at the Vintage Computer Festival East back in 2014. Then, by late 1982, this is where things started to change. Um, Texas Instruments found themselves in a home computer price war. Commodore computers were packing a lot of features, and seemed to be dropping their prices at regular intervals. Texas Instruments couldn't keep up, but still completed, or I'm sorry, still competed in this price war by offering rebates and other deals. They even pushed a service called the TI Computer Advantage Club in major metropolitan areas in order to get families interested in using the TI-99 as a family computer. They were really pushing this on the market. 
but still hoping that, that they could make money on their solid-state software modules, the TI-99 became a loss leader until an over $100 million loss over the product in mid-1983 forced them to proceed in discontinuing the TI-99. That was the height, yep. Yeah, and, excuse me, and around that time, they started marketing. They went. The TI-99 kind of has a, a silver and, and black. It's Actually, it had real aluminum over top of black plastic. It was really nice-looking design. But then they went to a cheaper design, um, inject, uh, was it mold-injected plastic that was kind of beige in color? They uh, went to another version. Yeah, yeah. And that version, then for some reason, they decided to lock out vendors because companies like Atari and, uh, let's see, there was a few other companies created software that worked on the uh, TI-99 that Texas Instruments really didn't want to have happen because they're trying to keep the market their own. Um, so they tried locking out Atari with a new one, and that that the consumers don't like that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't. Yeah. But in the end, the price on the TI-99 was cut so low that retailers were able to sell them for about $50 each around Christmas in 1983. The TI-99 was officially discontinued by spring of 1984, and that's when I got my first TI-99. Oh, really brand new then? I got it brand new. For really cheap? After Christmas in 1983, 50 bucks wow. at JCPenney. And it would have been fun just to bought, mess with. And I think I spent 30 bucks for the matching uh, uh, TI or uh, yeah, the Texas Instruments um, tape recorder. Wow. And, and, and it was. I had my VIC-20 at the time, so, uh, a computer we'll discuss in a later episode, and then I had the TI-99, and I sat down, I learned to program it, and, and right away I discovered there were some limitations. You know, with the Commodore stuff, Commodore opens up their hardware. They let people poke and prod at this thing. Um, and that's one thing that kind of, I believe, killed the TI-99 is that they did not want people to poke and prod at it. In fact, it had a really good color graphics capabilities. I mean, very good. 16 colors at once on the screen that were almost all individually addressable. Yeah. But they locked that out from people. Uh, it, it's, you had to spend a lot of money just to get the, the hardware and stuff to be able to program the computer to do that. And unless you actually created your own cartridges, somebody else would have to have that same hardware like I think it was a, an assembly cartridge or something like that. or Which that would have been really hard to do back then. Yeah, yeah. somebody yourself. would have to have the same cartridge to run your stuff if you were to tap into that hardware. So it, it did not work out in that sense. And I think that was you know kind of what killed... I think they shot themselves in the foot. And I just want to mention not to insult anyone's intelligence in the audience. I'm certain probably most people know what it means, what a loss leader means. But in case you didn't know... I think a modern example of that would be uh, HP printers. Oh, absolutely, yes, very good. <laughs> or so, a- in other words, printer. yeah, any also, jet printer these days. Yeah, grocery store. So it basically, HP or whoever makes no money on the printer because they know that you're gonna they're gonna make profit on all the cartridges you're gonna end up buying. But also, they do this a lot in marketing. I think in like you know grocery stores and I don't know retail establishments. So they're gonna promote razors something. and blades. Yeah, promote something. Well, something they really don't make any money on to bring you in the store because then they know you're you're way more likely to buy other things. Yes. But, you know, this time, I, I have to think that, um, well, the price war between, so it was primarily between Commodore, Atari, and TI with this. 
Yes, yeah, Apple was still kind of riding high, but yeah. they, they still had a good market. But this actually, it ties in to 1983. And of course, Atari was also involved in the video game uh, wars, yes. which all came to a, you know, everybody sank in 1983. Basically, the video game industry, you know, consoles just went south in 1983. Yeah, and it's funny because then when Nintendo brought that back to life, they created lockouts, hardware lockouts mm. that didn't work for TI or for the TI-99, you know, oh, but it but worked, for, worked for Nintendo later. Wow. Texas Instruments had, you know, in their beige model that they tried to stop Atari cartridges because you know, Atari made a line of uh, good um, arcade games yeah. for many different computers. Yeah. And they looked absolutely wonderful in the TI-99. That's where I learned how it had so, such good graphics is I hmm. got an Atari soft cartridge. That's what the name that was used. And the Donkey Kong one was the first one I bought, and I just couldn't believe how good this looked. But if I try to program those kind of graphics, even when I bought the extended basic cartridge, which has graphics commands, I could not achieve that quality of graphics. It wasn't until you know 20 years later when I was in the retro market that I started learning more about the TI-99 and what it was actually capable of doing. It just, it, in hindsight... Texas Instruments did the wrong thing. They should have opened up that hardware to people. They probably would have sold more. Um, instead, they tried to get Bill Cosby to sell it for them. <laughs> yeah, right, and Pudding Pops. And Pudding Pops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I, they, they tried. They, it, it's a good machine. It, when, you, when, you have, when you can afford to get all the stuff for it, there's a lot of neat things you can do with it. And it's a really solid machine. They're, they're still available in the used market. We'll get to that later. Um, and I was surprised when the, the TI-99 stuff that I set up last year at VCF East was stuff that I had since mid-1990s. I think it was 96, 97 I got it. And I haven't touched it until wow. 2014. And I just kind of cleaned things up, slapped it together, and it worked, including yeah. the disk drive. Uh, I was happy. And I bought the whole set for like, I bought those two sets plus a bunch of other stuff for like uh, 15 bucks. <laughs> but it's, it, they just hold up. It's built mm -hmm. very well. Uh, but anyway, yeah, they, they just, they couldn't market it right. They, they, they got a little stingy on stuff and, and it, it killed them, you know, at, at 100 and what, over $100 million loss. They yeah, I just, I, just said they, I don't think they, you know, because Texas Instruments, they weren't really, so correct me if I'm wrong, before that, but they weren't really that involved in the regular consumer marketplace, were they? Calculators. Calculators? Yes. But that's still a kind of a different marketplace. It, it is. It is a different marketplace. They they just wanted to try to see what kind of chips they can make and uh, what they can market it as. And that's some of these chips also came from their older, they had like mini mainframe type stuff going yeah. in the 70s. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, not much. And not much you probably would have heard about uh, or anybody would have heard about, but they were in the business market. And consumers got calculators. They should have partnered up with Coleco. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'll joking this. I mean, because maybe they could have helped them build a better computer. Maybe, it, you know, between the two of them. For some the reason, Atom, the TI-99, yeah. it makes me, I don't think there's anything alike. It makes me think of the Atom somewhat, the Coleco Atom, which really wasn't a bad computer, but it ended up selling for like next to nothing at, you know, toy stores and stuff finally when they cleared them all out makes you think of the atom maybe it's because it needs a keyboard and the pe box or an expansion box of some sort to rest the monitor on to make it a completely worthwhile system yeah yeah it could be right. 
All right, tell us about the interesting bits. Yes, there are some interesting bits about the TI, the Texas Instruments. In 1983, Texas Instruments had discovered <laughs> a shock hazard with their transformer power supply. Uh, the TI-99 computers used a small inline transformer for external power. It had a cord on one end to plug into the wall and oh, a brick. cord on the yeah. other end. It's a mini brick. It's just okay. a transformer. Um, the rest of the power supply was actually inside the computer itself. Um, the transformers could begin to overheat or was discovered that it, they could overheat and create a shock hazard for the user if, while it was bad, they touched an input port or the RF modulator, anything where there's metal. Uh you know, at least electrically connected metal. The metal that was on top of the thing was not electrically connected anywhere. Um, so to correct the problem, Texas Instruments advertised the newspapers all around um, and offered a, f they, they had a, like a big three-quarter page ad talking about how they're, they recognize their customers, they're, they're, they want to help them, they discover there's a problem, and they want to make sure everybody can get a solution. Um, they offered a free inline fuse adapter. Now, some of you may have already seen one of these things with the TI-99s found at flea markets and such. In fact, when I first saw it, I said, why is this? You know, it literally, it's why is this? Not what is this? Why is this? And it looks like a very short extension cord with a little box in line. The box contains a fuse that will blow in case of the transformer short. So they didn't really fix the transformer. They just made it so that <laughs> this fuse will blow <laughs> if there was a problem. Because uh, you're going to need a new transformer anyway, right? So you'll you know ask them to you know, give you another one. Right. But yeah, I've I've gotten I have have several TI-99s, and the ones I've received through flea markets or whatnot, some have this little short extension cord thing, and it just looks like a mini extension cord. It's about uh, maybe eight nine inches long, uh, but it just extends. The cord you you plug your transformer end into this, and you plug the other end into the wall, and that was the safety thing. Now yeah. you know that's when I discovered oh that's what these are for because you know the transformer could you know go bad or catch fire. I don't know. Uh, so it, at least they owned up to it. You know I guess they could have let the things just explode, uh, and they haven't really had any uh, people complain about them. But when they discovered it, I think what they did, I think they did the right thing by letting people know. And they had the money to advertise in all newspapers. They wanted to get the word out. Hey, we made a mistake. We want to get a fix for you. Here's how you can contact us. We'll get this to you. So you know, kudos to them for, for being able to do that. Um, and but by 83, 84-ish, that was basically it for the TI-99. Um, Texas Instruments kind of washed their hands of it, probably even wanted to. Uh, say what we didn't make a computer <laughs> they, they they wanted to disavow all knowledge of it but like a phoenix the ti-99 was reborn through efforts from members of users groups programmers and hardware designers the machine was actually quite capable as i mentioned before and many believe texas instruments shot themselves in the foot by limiting their primary software line to cartridges and restricting access to the system's hidden capabilities like those graphics i said mm -hmm. and in 1987 a company called myark created a special card that plugged into the peb the expansion box called the geneve uh, 9640. the geneve was basically a computer on a card and ran on a 12 megahertz TMS 9995 processor and has an 80 column output. It ran almost all TI-99 software, but used an IBM XT keyboard for input. So think of it That's interesting. more like an S100 CPU card. Uh, so you put this in the expansion box. The TI-99, 
See, I wish I had a Geneve, but I don't. So I'm not completely familiar with the configuration. I think that you don't need the TI-99 computer itself, but you need the expansion box. The expansion box has its own power supply, powers the computer, and then you have this output, and then you have uh, uh, the XT keyboard input. And they just kind of did their own thing with it. They used the existing hardware to create something new, and there's a big following for the Geneve. And I don't follow it much because I don't own one, and you know, there's lots of other things I can spend my time on and <laughs> trying to chase down something I probably won't ever be able to get. Now, but, is an XT keyboard is that that's that would also be an original IBM keyboard, same thing. Yes, it'll probably have the large five-pin round DIN plug with the ten function keys. Okay, it's just interesting being called an XT. Yes. Yeah, that had the 10, 10 function keys and also had a different uh, data bit rate for co um, communications to the computer. Okay. I've had a couple over the years. Of course, I never had one originally, you know, so I just had one as a collector that I've, I've gotten a few different ones over the years. They've always worked. And, um, yeah, that's the nice thing. Some of them do go bad eventually, but for the most part, they work. Yeah, I mean, I think they're really they're well made. The ones I had were always the silver ones. And there's some popular games for them, like Parsec. It's a very good shoot 'em up game. Uh, now the TI joysticks have, leave a little to be desired, but you really you really don't have much choice unless you can wire up an adapter because the, the, car, or the um, joystick port was 9-pin. looked like an Atari port. Uh -huh. but you can plug an Atari joystick in it and expect it to work. You can plug the Atari joystick in, but you might want to be careful moving it around because you might short something out. Um, but the, the Texas Instruments joysticks were paired. There was two joysticks that each cable went to a single plug. That oh, plug, yeah. I remember and, seeing but that. They, they really hurt your hand. They didn't use micro switches or anything. They used plastic you know the, the plastic joystick and then on the inside was like padded foam that sort of pushed down on a, a membrane switch on the inside mm -hmm. they worked for a while and then they would go bad um, but it, it's not too difficult to rewire say an Atari joystick if you have the pinouts you can figure it out and I th even think they made adapters a two-to-one adapter that would be that would pre-wire Atari you just plug two Atari joysticks into the adapter and plug that adapter into TI-99 and it would let you use two Atari joysticks. Hmm. But the games are good when they were written for the, the graphic hardware. Um, so it did a wonderful job with that. It's, just, it's a shame that the average user just ended up looking at some almost a facade. You know, this, this, is, this is the TI-99 we want you to see, but, you know... The TI-99 can do a whole lot more, but we're not going to let you use it because we don't want to. <laughs> and Tell so, us how a real computer then should be made. <laughs> so that started life around 79 and it lasted to about 83. Yes. And so I think, so the next computer we're going to talk about, next couple of computers here are, basically we're going to talk about now from the um, Acorn Atom to the BBC Micro. And uh, it's also around the same time frames that that uh, these existed. So first, I'm going to talk about, in this case, the company, because um, at least most Americans aren't as familiar with it. It's called um, Acorn Computer Limited. 
But there were actually two companies originally. There was Cambridge Processor Unit Limited, or CPU, and then Acorn Computer Limited. And they were both founded by Chris Curry and Herman Hauser in Cambridge, England, in December 1978 and January 1979, respectively. The two companies were set up separately as to reduce the risk between the two different lines of their business. So, um, you know, one was a chip maker, um, IC maker, I guess, and the other was, of course, making uh, computers. Um, Chris Curry had worked for Clive Sinclair at Radionics and then started a new enterprise for him called Science of Cambridge, or SOC. Um, there, they launched Sinclair's earliest microcomputer kit, the MK14. Curry struggled with Sinclair to further develop the product, and when he ultimately refused, Curry's left his employee. During this time, Curry's friend, Herman Hauser, had been visiting and was very interested in Curry's work. So in the end, the two men went into business together. Sinclair and Curry would be business adversaries for many years. And again, I want to bring up a uh, the BBC uh, little movie called Micro Men, and we talked about it a couple of shows back. And That's there's right, a link in the show notes. huh? That's right, we did. Yeah, when we talked about the ZX80. Uh, so uh, there's a link in the show notes again to that uh, that sh- that movie you can watch on uh, YouTube. So if you haven't watched it, you should because it's, it's it's enjoyable. Anyway, um, and then also a link to our other show about the ZX80 if you want to further look into Sir Clive Sinclair and and some of his things. But he'll come up again here. So Acorn Computer developed three basic systems which led up to the Atom. The first was called the System One, and it was essentially a simple single board design. So with the System 2, they added a case and keyboard, and this basically then served later on as the basis of the Atom with the case. So they looked about the same. But they continued to upgrade this, the System 2, and it became the System 3, and they added a, uh, a floppy disk controller card, a floppy disk drive, and then a disk operating system in ROM, and replacing the cassette interface card and cassette operating system of the System 2. Um, the System 3 became the standard workhorse for develop- development in the Acorn Lab. And the uh, the Acorn Atom has been referred to as a cut-down version of the System 3. Uh, as it was based on the System 3... <sighs> Wait a minute. I'm messing up in my notes here. I have like some duplicate stuff. All right, I'll fix that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead and fix it. We'll wait, and then you can... So the, the Acorn down. Atom has been called the cut-down version of System 3. I, I'm and just going to leave it and at it that. Was, and it was based on the System 3 that much of the development work for the... Okay, yeah. Set it to a cut-down version of System 3. And the Acorn Atom has been called the cut-down version of System 3. We'll just leave it at that. That's fine. Okay. Okay. So... Many believe that when Curry learned of Sinclair's development of the ZX80 in mid-1979, he felt that Acorn should start the Atom project to uh, really start targeting the consumer computer market. The Atom was a compromise of the System 2 and 3, was a cut-down Acorn System 3, but without a disk drive, uh, and with an integral keyboard and cassette tape interface. Wow, I really messed up my notes here. (laughs) <laughs> That's all right. I'll keep going. It was available in either a kit or, or a complete form. So before you post this, Jeff, I need to uh, edit that little part there. I got. I guess I was rushing. Not a problem. In 1980, it was priced between 120 pounds in kit form, which in today's money would be, well, I don't know. Back then, it would probably be Was it like $200. 1.5 to 1 back then? Oh, maybe Something so. Like 1.5 
dollar yeah. and a half for every. So seventy nine money. So you know, yeah, let's just go with that. That'd probably and be like four or five hundred bucks back then. Oh no, no, I was thinking it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, one hundred twenty. Yeah, because the pound was much stronger back then. About uh, well, that's what I said. One oh dollar and a half per pound. Um, that's it, more like now, right? That would have been. Yeah, but I thought it was similar. Was it two per? Was it double? So basically, you double the pound, and that's dollars. I don't know. Well, that's <laughs> when we talk about retro money. But I mean, let's just go with today's rate. Let's say that would be equivalent like two hundred dollars. But again, remember that's two hundred dollars in, in nineteen seventy nine. So probably it was equivalent to more than that. But that would have been kit form, one hundred seventy pounds ready assembled to over two hundred pounds for the fully uh, expanded version with twelve k of RAM. And the floating point extension ROM. Still, even at 200 pounds back then, that wasn't that bad of a price for that. No. I mean, you're buying Commodore 64s uh, on 1980, you're talking 1980. So you buy a Commodore VIC 20 for or near a VIC 20, even that wasn't out then. Um, close to $300, $400 anyway for a computer. Mm-hmm. TRS 80, you know, $500. So yeah, that was actually pretty uh, fair price. And then you get those extra features with it so some of the basic specs of the system was um it had a one megahertz mos technology 6502 cpu it had two kilobytes of ram expandable to 12 it had an eight kilobyte rom which is expandable to 12 with various acorn and third-party roms it had a one channel integral loudspeaker for sound and a I found now as we get into a couple other things, I thought this was pretty interesting. As far as I.O. ports, it had what was called the CUTS interface. And the CUTS interface stood for Computer Users Tape Standard. And maybe that was just a standard for all computers back then with the tape interface. I don't know. But I just when I saw CUTS there, I know that was something I had seen in the S100 world, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, the TI-99 had separate connectors for the uh, tape. So anyway, so that definitely, there were cuts cards, I know, for S100. It had a TV connector and a Centronics parallel printer connector. Really? Centronics? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, here's another standard for storage. It had the Kansas City standard audio cassette interface. Was that like 300 baud or something? I'm not sure. But again, this is something that came out of the S100 world. I know. Okay. Maybe I know a lot so of things did. They didn't try to recreate it. They used something that was standard. So you could almost technically read any other kansas city standard tape i think so but whether it worked in your computer once you loaded the stuff you know that that was a different story but the audio would sound the same if you listened to both tapes from and so it came also with um built-in basic which was called atom basic i'm surprised it was only expandable to 12k yeah but i guess probably that's because of sockets right i think you had to take the ram out and add it add the more you know maybe that was all that was they mapped so much, or they either that, or they used more of the um, the mapping, the memory map for um, basic or other kernel. Or it might stuff. have been maybe the limitations of like the the design of the RAM, the sockets or whatever, the type uh, of RAM. It like could it have been just, twelve. Seems like an odd number. That's why. Yeah. Uh, you have two K available or expandable to twelve. Okay, two K. Let's just say you get four K. Uh, there's six. Then what? Another set of two and four K. Uh, if you put an eight in there, you have fourteen K. It's it's just kind of weird. That's all. I'm just remarking because it just seems a little odd. So I found a very nice uh, website. If you click on the the link there in the show notes, it just says uh, the the Acorn Atom, and it's in the .nl Netherlands. 
uh, the person. So um, it's got a picture of the the atom in its box, just sitting on top of a box. Looks like a very attractive box too. And oh, I see. It. Top shot of the um, the casing, and then some of the tip technical details and the the board. That um, kind of has a look comparable to my um, what is it my my Panasonic JR two hundred U. Yeah, which is a one-off system. It has that kind of slope front, that similar style keyboard, and then that back area that's kind of like nondescript. Rigid. Yeah, but you know, simple but attractive. And then you can see the floppy drive. You go down a little bit further. Sort of it's odd. Like a nice, nice keyboard on it though. Oh, I can floppy see the drive? floppy drive would would hang out over the top of the computer. I bet. And you can tell it's a British floppy drive because it's a double decker. <laughs> that's right <laughs> and you insert the disc on the on the right side that you should check it out but you know nice looking uh stuff here hardware expansion boards and lots of great links so you're going to find out a lot more about the atom this is a great like page. the manual was designed rather well too acorn computer so moving on the the atom was relatively successful for the company, so Acorn moved on and started thinking about a possible 16-bit micro to replace it. After a lot of discussion and planning, uh, Hauser suggested a compromise, though, instead, and he suggested an improved 6502-based machine, sticking with 8-bit, but with better expansion capabilities. This was to be called the Proton. In early 1980, the British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, started a computer literacy program mostly as a follow-up to a documentary series called The Mighty Micro. And there's a link in the show notes to that on YouTube. So definitely a great timepiece. Um, the series was so influential that members in Parliament discussed it and its implications. It was decided wow. that the British... Parliament had a word about it. Yeah. So, and well, you know, in England, it was actually at this time, once they implemented what I go on to talk about here, is uh, they were like... Um, the most computer literate country in the world there for a little while. So uh, I think, so the series, uh, so it was decided that the British Department of Industry or the BDOI would sell a microcomputer to go with the series. BBC Engineering was instructed to draw up an objective specification for a computer. Although wow. the new brain was initially chosen as the computer for the BBC, it became apparent that the company Newbury Laboratories would not be able to produce it in time nor to the BBC's strict specifications. And this caused the program to move back from autumn 1981 to the spring of 1982, and they began looking for another computer. When both Curry and Sinclair found out about the BBC's plans, which this is in that, that movie, <laughs> um, they both submitted their own proposals. The BBC visited Acorn and were given a demonstration of the Proton. Soon afterwards, the literacy program computer contract was awarded to Acorn. The BBC Micro was launched in December 1981. In April 1984, Acorn won the Queen's Award for Technology for the BBC Micro. The award paid special tribute to the BBC Micro's advanced design, and it commended Acorn for the development of a microcomputer system with many innovative systems, or features, rather. So there's a link in the show notes just to the Wikipedia article, and uh, which is a good article, so I'm just going to just go over it a little bit. There, there's, a, there's a lot more we could say about it. But um, let's just say pretty much it was it came out in early 82, late 81 officially. But um, it was about 235 pounds for the Model A, and there's a Model B for 335 pounds. It was very, very successful. And it stayed on the market for a, quite a long time. Sold over I'd love one, to have one of these. Um, yeah, and sold but I'd have over, to find a U.S.-centric power supply for it. Yeah, so that's the, that's the reason you don't hardly ever see them in the United States. 
So they sold over one and a half million of them. So it's kind of, you know, at least up there close to, I guess, the Commodore 64. Yeah, that, really close. Um, I'm noticing here that there is something that brings both of the these systems in this episode together. The sound chip was um, the Texas Instruments SN76489, which is four-channel mono sound, but it also had the TMS5220 speech synthesizer like the TI-99 had. Wow. So this show is officially tied together. Do you think they licensed that? I guess oh, they had to. I think Texas Instruments sold the technology to anybody who wanted to buy it. So I, I, maybe it was licensing, but I think it was just they, they just sold the the, uh, the IP, let people use it. Also, I also want to mention that the uh, – so the, the BBC Micro and the Acorn, uh, or, you know, Acorn computers, they also developed the ARM architecture and the ARM um, processor. Is that which, where it started? Yeah, which went on to be in the, the Newton. Apple invested in the company – and uh, we won't go into that. I just know that it's it's still pretty successful, right? I yeah, know it's using lots of things now. It is. So, so see, the, uh, the last thing to say is, again, I'm, if you still haven't seen the movie Micro Men, you should because it's very yeah, interesting plug it. and entertaining. And But it also really helps to explain um, parts of the, the story a lot better. So there's one last sort of an interesting irony and and in these events that I want to explain. So so initially the um, the BBC chose the New Brain computer by Newbury Laboratories, and that company was owned by the National Enterprise Board, which was a government agency operating uh, in close collaboration with the Department of Industry for the for the English the UK. So the New Brain started life as a Sinclair radionics project. So by Sinclair, <laughs> and it was Sinclair's preference for developing it over science of Cambridge's MK14, which that ultimately had led to Curry leaving SOC, Science of Cambridge, to found the other company, CPU, with Hauser. <laughs> it's like a soap opera. Yeah, and also this is, I don't, did we cover it pretty well when we did the Sinclair story? I think we did. It's just, he had these different companies and... You know, like, yes, there like, was a good run in, in the explanation of how that started, and this is a, a very interesting extension to that and how it how it grew from you know in, in just a few years, how everything intermixed and interweaved and yeah, and Sinclair let paths. one let yeah. the government have the one and started another one, and you know I don't know. So enough said about that movie, but you know what? Go watch it if you haven't. So, Jeff, take it away with your eBay. We're doing good on time, it looks like. So we just have yeah, our eBay auctions, and we'll wrap it up. We'll do that. Uh, my first eBay auction I picked is, and this is actually a rather nice find uh, for somebody who got it and, and paid to have it shipped. Um, the peripheral expansion boxes, the PEBs for the TI-99, is officially called the PHP-1200. Um you can find them. They're not completely cheap. Um, if you get them through eBay, you'll probably probably spend a lot of money just shipping them. I kind of thought they were cheaper than this, though. Uh, it, your your costs are going to be a mix between shipping and the item itself and what the item comes with. Now, the PE boxes, a good deal would be if you found one that had the... 32K memory cartridge, the RS-232 cartridge, and the disc controller cartridge, and a disk drive at least. It would take one full-size, full-height 
five and a quarter inch disc drive or two half heights. Um, this one says new and original box. I missed that at first. This, the nice thing about this one is new and original box has the original instruction manual and it comes with the, uh, the disc drive controller. And actually one other cartridge went in this. Um, it was the interface cartridge. That's the one with the fire hose cable. So that plugged into one of the slots and that had the cable that came out and then plugged into the TI-99. And you can see that in the picture in this one on the right-hand side, what the fire hose cable looked like. Big, flat ribbon that's an in insulation. Yep. Yep. And wrapped up inside of it is the connector that went into the side of the computer. And okay. if you hear trampling going on in the background, I think my daughter is feeding the dogs, and they're all excited now. We we both got all kinds of noise. No problem. This active active character. Friday evening. It adds character. Uh, the pictures are really nice. Gives you a good idea what the expansion box looks like. It's actually pretty big and it's heavy. For me, this one would have cost forty one dollars and twenty cents to ship economy from Indiana to Pennsylvania. Yeah, but it sold for one forty five ninety nine, which I think for somebody who wants a, a brand new one probably paid an okay price for it. I, I, it could have been better, but there was probably a bit of a bidding war in this uh, because that doesn't look like a price somebody would have put in as a buy it now. And I don't see any bidding history here. But you could probably find these maybe for 60 or 70 if you don't mind them beat up a little bit. But they are pretty solid. So even if the outside looks ugly, you could pop the top off and if the board on the inside looks clean, you, you it'll work for you because all the work really happens with the cards and the cards themselves are clamshell aluminum with plastic paint on them. They, they're build rough and solid too. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just, these things are tanks. Um, well, but, they had to be that like hold up displays and everything else, right? Yeah. It's, they're just very well built. And, and as I mentioned, I had stuff like this sitting around and I moved them two or three times and they still work. So I would say if you find one of these things for $80, if you really want to build a TI-99 system that give you a lot, find one of these expansion boxes. Um, and hopefully it comes with the extra cards. Like I said, the RS-232. You at least want the disk drive controller. Uh, and 32K memory is nice. You don't need to have the RS-232, but there are provisions for you to be able to transfer entire disks through the serial port interface to create your own disk library of software. But you'll need at least, uh, you know, this if you want to do anything like that. Or if you just want to play around with the TI-99 for what it is, my other eBay uh, auction link is a boxed TI-99 and this one came with a, um, a cartridge Chisholm trail. And a lot of times you'll find them this way in their box. You can, yeah. This is the silver black one. It looks like it's in pretty good shape. A lot of times that silver, that's real aluminum there, uh, can get buffed or scratched or, you know, whatever from bad handling. You can see the power supply itself. This one um, is has the power supply. And if you look at the connector, you can see from the part that goes into the wall if you follow it and trace it back you see a little thin black box in line that's that adapter uh, that safety adapter that yeah. fuse and then it goes in line and then the other end of the transformer goes in the back of the ti-99 but this one's nice and clean keyboard it's a nice keyboard it's a it's a very versatile good good um, 
you know, the keyboard has a good throw to it. It's just a wee bit cramped. Yeah, and the condition, um, it does, it says near mint condition, no breaks or damage. And this one sold for $39.99, which is, is probably good for near mint. Um, and this came from Lansdale. That's three counties away from me. It would have cost $13 for me to have it shipped here. When I but did a quick search too, that while while you're you're talking, yeah, that you're you can, you can find these pretty cheap. Yeah, they're pretty cheap, and you can even time. get the beige one. I just don't recommend the beige one for two reasons. First of all, it's beige. I mean, <laughs> IBM was doing beige. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the silver black one has character, and it's not going to lock out. Like you can still get the cartridges for this. They're everywhere on eBay. They're everywhere. You can probably find them at flea markets. Whatever. They're everywhere. But the Atari soft cartridges were the ones to have because they were uh, clones of popular arcade games of the day, and they did a really wonderful job with them. Um, you won't be able to run those easily on the beige TI-99s. You would have to have the silver black ones. All right. That's my list. Let's see. So I, um, I was able to find two completed auctions – I think these are like there's only one of each that were that show up in the American eBay or whatever. So first off is, is an Atom, so vintage Acorn Atom computer, sixty five hundred two CPU, great condition, one dollar start bid, no reserve. <laughs> and this sold from uh, Zan Netherlands, and um, okay. did it and it won one hundred and fifty two dollars and fifty cents. Oh, it says used and sold as is. So this is a, a, a Acorn Atom, and if you, if you look at it, it looks like the other picture, and it looks yes, like it that uh, System 2 says Acorn Atom on it, though. I like the look of the keyboard on this. It looks like a typewriter, a quality typewriter keyboard. Yeah. Like it's it, a Bakelite plastic, shiny Bakelite plastic. It may be partly broken on the left part of the space bar. You see that? kind of uh, goes in. Oh, yeah, those springs. That there's what? Typically, there's a spring on either side or a lever on either side. It probably got bent. And Somebody it probably slammed does it playing have games. a picture of like the the case off. Yes, kind of interesting. Well, the chips are mounted upside down on, on the board. But uh, I was I was trying to zoom in on the back. Oh, and it has a little sticky. Someone said five volt in. Really? Is that five? So this could be. Okay, this could be powered off of any I guess high capacity five volt power supply. So this would work in the U.S., but your output's going to be in PAL. Yeah, unless it has some other standard video output, and like I imagine C you CGA can, output or something. When uh, my wife and I lived in Germany, we bought a uh, a portable 13-inch television that was dual. That would okay. switch it from power. Good luck to, finding those these days. I I don't know. I wonder hard. if you, you should. I bet you can find those maybe on eBay or you something. You could, and you know they make PAL to NTSC converters. Oh you yeah. Can buy boards that'll do that. I don't know what it does to the quality of the signal, but. It just dawned on me when I said maybe it has CGA output, but CGA is NTSC standard. Um, it's just multiple colors on multiple paths, but it still, I think, uses the same timing rate. So. Yeah. Oh, I think it, if I remember correctly, it's a different uh, frames per minute. Is what the, different, uh, the refresh rate or whatever. 50 frames per second. Yeah, something like that. So this didn't include the or power 25. adapter. It could have been, depends on if they did uh, uh, interlaced. So um so this this sold for one hundred fifty two dollars with no power supply, so um, it was missing that. But at so least I had an instructions written on it for five volts. Yeah, 
And so the other the other one I found is called Original BBC Micro Model B Computer Only Issue Four Motherboard Partly Tested. It came out of uh, Glasgow, United Kingdom. Glas- Glasgow, I think that's how you say it. Glasgow. Uh, did not have any BBC software or cassette deck to test games loading. Keyboard works fine, and blah blah blah. It cuts off there. So sold for approximately 118 U.S. Uh, 79.95 uh, pounds. See, it would have been seventy-two dollars to ship it to me. So um, I got forty-eight ninety-five. So again, if you look at this, the basic case isn't that different from the the Atom. It has no, those extra red keys up top. I guess the they're function, function keys. keys. Yeah, I like how they, they use almost uh, mathematical notation for the F. Yeah. Oh, and you see how on the how the uh, expansion is on the bottom, back bottom. That's kind of neat. Let me get to that. Oh, okay. So it can hide your cables. Um, so this is a computer only as seen in pictures. What's this? This tube. <laughs> the tube connector. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's in... Uh, I'm trying to think. I didn't speak about it, but there's... If you look, go to the, the uh, like Wikipedia article, it talks about that. And they have a direct connection to the one megahertz bus. So somebody who... A little bit of a hardware hacker could uh, basically connect right into the uh, uh, memory bus. And you can see the English three-prong plug. Yeah. With a big old fuse inside of it. Very interesting. So that's it. All right. It's a lot. Boy. Definitely. uh, We did it. This this is our uh, dissertation, this episode. It was really long. Not too bad. Hopefully we don't have to defend it. We're still only a little over an hour. It's not bad at all. Not bad at all. I'm just tired. <laughs> well, that's what we get for waiting. I'm not going to stay up all this. night and edit. No, there you go. It won't take that long. I did my part. We only have a couple <laughs> spots we have to work. I have to stop at. So that is it. We're going to do another show in two weeks. And it'll be released on Friday, April the 10th. And it's going to be a very special show, as it's going to be all about the Commodore VIC-20 and the C64. It's going to be a Commodore podcast, which I was thinking about this. I know Earl Evans had started, uh, do you call it Chickenhead, I think? or Podcast, and and, you know, I guess maybe that he didn't, he's not doing them anymore. Chicken Lips. Chicken Lips, is that it? Yeah. So I think that was, as far as I know, the only attempt at a Commodore podcast and then it hasn't continued. So why aren't there any Commodore podcasts? That's what he asked. I think why he started it. Because he needs a co-host. Machines are ubiquitous enough that it doesn't need its own podcast. He needs because you're on another podcast. You want you to get it with the Earl and do a Commodore podcast. <laughs> <I should>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's your other podcast again, Jeff? Uh, Tell the listening the, audience. Oh, that's right. Um, I am also co-hosting the. Electric Dreams BBS podcast, where uh, Mike Whalen and I discuss the history and the fun times and um, basically of BBSing back in the days when we didn't have webmasters, we had sysops. <laughs> yep. So go to our website, historyofpersonalcomputing.com, plus follow us on both Twitter and Facebook. Send your feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com and please tell someone about us write a review on itunes or spread the word with facebook google plus or twitter perhaps you're in a specialty discussion group 
tell them. Perhaps you're going to the uh, VCF East or East. Yes, East you may or see or me there. I will be there with my uh, Commodore Amiga 2000 running video toaster. Oh, so that's less of, than a month. That's less than a month. Uh, I got my room and everything. I'm ready to go. There's actually going to be two people there. I'm one of them. We'll be demonstrating the video toaster system for the Commodore Amiga. Oh, and I think uh, they put you next to each other, right? Didn't you say? I don't know if they did or not. But you know, at first when I heard it, somebody else was doing one, I thought it'll be. It's like it's like wearing the, the It's like somebody else coming to the party with the same dress you're wearing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll probably each have our own different thing. I plan on doing some green screening and stuff. I bought additional parts like time-based correctors to make all the video work good. I just have to test it all. But I might bring bring a backup exhibit just in case. Haven't thought about what it will be yet, but I'm sure I can put something together. So talk to you next time. Talk to you later and flower power. <laughs> <laughs>